in chapter 8 of 2 Kings. Chapter 8 of 2 Kings. And we keep reading about kings, and I have to keep reminding myself, well, it's called 2 Kings. (laughs) And uh, most of these kings are bad kings. And they get their little attention, they get mentioned to us, and they're hearing the word of God for us to learn things from their lives that would be principles for us as followers of Christ, and or if we're not followers of Christ, what can motivate us to trust in Christ for the good things he has for us. So as we go forward tonight, we're in that part of 2 Kings where Elisha is the main prophet of the Lord, and we're going to get the record of kings of the north, the northern kingdom of Israel, and we're going to get the record of some kings of Judah as well, and we're going to read some events that... Yeah, they're pretty violent, to be honest, but the word of God is honest and true and transparent in the human experience. And so as we go through this, we'll keep connecting it to the New Testament, Jesus, and our faith as the Church of Jesus Christ in 2022, because it all connects together. Chapter 8, verse 1 says this, Then Elisha spoke to the woman whose son he had restored to life. If you recall a couple chapters ago, Elisha with the Shunammite woman promised her a son, she had the son, and then the son died, and then he breathed life back into the son. And so that's the background of this introduction here in verse 1 of chapter 8. So Elijah spoke to the woman whose son he had restored to life, and he said to her, Arise and go, you and your household, and stay wherever you can, for the Lord has called for a famine, and furthermore it will come upon the land for seven years. So the woman arose and did according to the saying of the man of God, and she went with her household and dwelt in the land of the Philistines, Seven years. So she went down to the coastland. And it came to pass at the end of seven years that the woman returned from the land of the Philistines and she went to make an appeal to the king, that'd be the king of Israel, Joash, for her house and for her land. Then the king talked with Gehazi. Remember, Gehazi is Elisha's servant who was struck with leprosy for going after Naaman and the riches of Naaman, the Syrian general, after he had been healed from his leprosy. And Elisha pronounced the leprosy on him because he pursued those riches when it wasn't for him to go after. Plus, he lied about it. So Gehazi is still around. So he's got leprosy, but leave it to Gehazi to no longer be with Elijah, but now he's hanging out with the king. That's how those kind of people are like that. So the servant of the man of God saying, tell me, please, all the great things Elijah has done. So this is is Jehoram just asking to know more about Elijah, and he's He's got this love-hate relationship with Elisha because he curses him and then he's amazed by him. And so here he is, almost like Herod, when he's asking John the Baptist about the things of God. He's saying to Gehazi, tell me, tell me, tell me about all the great things Elisha's done. Verse 5, not happened as he was telling the king how he had restored the dead to life. And there was the woman whose son he had restored to life, appealing to the king for her house and for her land. And Gehazi said, my lord, O king, this is the woman. And this is her son whom Elisha restored to life. And when the king asked the woman, she told him, yep, that's the way it is. And so the king appointed a certain officer for her, saying, restore all that was hers and all the proceeds of the field from the day that she left the land until now. This is a great story. There's a lot here. Probably come back to it on Saturday night for a topical. Draw your attention right to the very beginning there where it says in verse 1, the Lord called for a famine, and not just a famine, a seven-year famine. In the Bible, we have plenty of famines, and of course the Bible is essentially an agriculture society, an agri-society, so a famine affects the supermarket. It affects the mini-mart, it affects the gas station for us, it affects all those things. The famine struck your very livelihood of your sustenance. 
your food and provision for your family. In the Old Testament, as I mentioned, there are numerous famines, particularly in the book of Genesis, all the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, including Joseph, all had famines affect their world and their lives. Famines are are very interesting because they happened in our weather cycle in a post-flood world, post-ice age, after the flood. We get these weather patterns. We get certain things that go a certain way. La Nina, El Nino, different things can happen. And you get famines. And this famine, of course, anything that happens in the universe is under the authority of Jesus Christ. It's his universe and all things are made by him and for him and in him all things are held together. So when there's a famine for a region or a famine even could be for the planet, there certainly will be in the book of Revelation, a shortage of food. It's, it's from the Lord where God's working. Now, it's interesting about a famine with the patriarchs is Abraham, the father of you know the Jews, when he was tested with his famine, he panicked. So he was a wealthy man, but he panicked, and he went down to Egypt during the famine. He didn't stay in the promised land. He inherited Hagar, who became his thorn in the flesh, then Ishmael, the son, through her, and all the domestic problems that came from it. Sarah, at the time she was known as Sarah, actually bailed him out during the famine. God blessed Abram when he was in Egypt because of his wife, Sarai. So her trust in the Lord at the time brought a blessing on him when he panicked during the famine. Isaac, the son of promise, through Sarah, when he faced the famine, he came through it awesome. Because he was in the promised land. There was a famine. And the Lord's like, don't leave the promised land. This is where the promises are. And we're told that during the famine, he began to sow in the land. And he became prosperous. And he prospered. And he became a very uh, prosperous person. The word prosperous used three times in two verses with Isaac. And he reaped a hundredfold in the land when he sowed in the land during the famine. So unlike his father, the son of promise actually you know, got busy and did things during the famine and he made things happen during the famine and he reaped the benefits of it with a hundredfold increase. Now, Jacob, the son of Isaac, when the famine hit him, it was after he had lost Joseph to Egypt, although he thought Joseph was dead, one of the 12 sons betrayed by the brothers. He was, in fact, alive in Egypt. And Jacob, during the famine, saw everything as God punishing him. He took it personal. Like it was all like all these things are against me and all these things are against me. Inevitably, he had to send Benjamin down to Egypt during the famine as a trade-off for Reuben and all, all that whole story, if you know it. But that famine produced a really good fruit in the life of the patriarchs because that famine reunited the family together. So the family that was estranged by the brothers betraying Joseph, lying to their dad, all that crooked way was made straight during their seven-year famine. Joseph saved the family. Joseph prospered his boss, Pharaoh, and was used as a tool to reconcile his family together to become the great nation of Israel as 70 and 100 years of years later, they had come out of Egypt as the mighty nation that they were and are even to this day. So you just take the four patriarchs, including Joseph as one of them, and you realize you can fail the test of a famine, you can sow bountifully in a famine, you can say God's against you in a famine, or you can be used by the Lord to bring people together in a famine. And for us as the church of Jesus Christ, in any famine that we might face in our personal life, in our family, finances, 
or in a region, if we're profoundly affected by economic hardship or in a nation by hardship, we just got to know that the disciple of Jesus Christ, single, married, whatever responsibilities we have, if it's all the Lord's, it's all the Lord's. And we just got to learn, we, we know that we can trust the Lord no matter what. Everything is from the Lord. Even in the book of Acts, they had a famine. Just when the church was getting traction and the church had gone out from Jerusalem into the region of Syria and started to spread out in the Mediterranean, the prophet Agabus stood up and said, there's going to be a great famine that's going to affect the whole world as we know it. It, it was going to be in the days of Caesar Claudius, Claudia, and it was going to affect everybody. So here in this time, in, in the church age, not, this is not Old Testament, but during the church, God forewarned the church of a great famine through his servant Agabus the prophet, and we're told that the believers work together collectively to produce their income and, and share income and to meet the needs of the church in a universal way during that famine. Isn't that cool? Like, that's what the church does. Like, the church... So, in other words, in the book of Acts, when they're told there's a famine and they got the words of famine, they gave and they sowed. They gave and they sowed. And it's worth noting, a lot of people think we're headed for a big famine in the United States and worldwide. There's a lot of people that believe we're already in a global recession, we're, we're already in a national recession, and we're headed toward a really hard economic time in 2023. I don't really know if we are or aren't. It's kind of like trials, I don't ask for them, I just want to make sure I pass the test of them, right? Like I said on Saturday, I prefer winning over losing, don't you? But you learn more from losing. And I prefer to be prosperous and to go through a famine. But I don't, I know that the Lord has a plan in all those things. Because it was Paul himself who said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And I've learned to abound and I've learned to abase. So I just think it's, it's a good word for us when we look at this famine that the Lord called the famine. And it was a prolonged famine. It was seven years. Even if you study our own nation, the economic things we've been through, particularly in you know the, the tech bubble crash in 2001 and then 07, 08, the housing and all that, you know, just all those things, and we never really recovered, and kind of our economic challenges are still the byproduct of those things not being fixed correctly and being a debt-driven global economy now. And all I can tell you is our standards for how we get by day-to-day -day are not the world's standards. We look to the Lord for our daily bread in Jesus' name. He's our provider. We trust in him and we apply his word to our economic circumstances and we know that we can always trust in the Lord. And in talking with Daniel Lindbergh the other night, you can never outgive God. I was talking with Daniel and Don after service. It was epic because we were talking about like sowing bountifully and Daniel started acting like he had a huge shovel. And he goes, the more you give away, the more he gives to you and it just keeps moving. And it is so true. And we know that to be true because of course it says the one that sows bountifully will Reap bountifully, of course, yes. So I look at this text, and I think it's a good encouraging word for us, not to fear the famine. Faith triumphs over all things. And our faith says God's in control of his universe. He's in control of this planet. He's in control of global economics. And he's in control of our lives. And we can trust him with everything. And that's what I'm reminded of when I read this text tonight. As I think about how he tested the patriarchs with the famine, how he tested the, the early church with the famine, and he might be testing us going forward in the, in the 2020s with famine, and I intend to pass those tests, as I'm sure you do too. Yes and amen, right? Okay, so we pick it up in verse 7, 
and now we're going to really get moving with some of these kings and movements of political things that we can learn from in application for the church. Then Elisha went to Damascus. So this instance, he's leaving Israel and he's headed for Syria. And Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, was sick. And it was told him, Ben-Hadad, the man of God has come here. And the king said to Haziel, take a present in your hand and go meet the man of God and inquire of the Lord by him, saying, shall I recover from this disease? So Haziel, he's like the right-hand man of Ben-Hadad's. He goes out to meet him. He took a present with him of every good thing of Damascus, 40 camels loaded. And he came and stood before me and said, your son, Ben-Hadad of Syria, has sent to me to you, saying, shall I recover from this disease? And Elisha said to him, go say to him, you shall certainly recover. However, the Lord has shown me that he will really die. Then he set his countenance in his stare, that is, Elisha, until he was ashamed. And the man of God, Elisha, wept. And Haziel said, why is my Lord weeping? And he answered, because I know the evil that you will do to the children of Israel. Their strongholds you will set on fire. Their young men you will kill with the sword. You will dash their children and rip open their women with child. And Haziel said, well, what, what is this you... But what is your servant, a dog, that you should say, do this gross thing? Like, Hazel's like, I, I would never do something like that. And Elijah answered, the Lord has shown me that you will become king over Syria. And then he departed from Elisha and came to his master, Ben-Hadad, and who said to him, what did Elisha say? And he answered, he told me you would surely recover. But it happened on the next day, he took a thick cloth, dipped it in water, spread it over his face, and so that he died, and Hazel reigned in his place. I'm not sure why Elisha encouraged Haziel to be uh, misleading to Ben-Hadad. Maybe it was God's mercy that Ben-Hadad would die in peace not knowing. That's how terminal illnesses are sometimes, right? Sometimes, sometimes you don't really even want to know. So who even really knows in this situation? What I do find interesting is the day before you die, you're trying to give everything away to the man of God. <laughs> it's so funny when you're stepping into eternity how you act when you know you're just a day or two from eternity. All that wealth, King Ben-Hadad, all that wealth he took from Israel, besieging Samaria, all the things he did. But when you got a date of destiny with the Lord, you're like Voltaire. Now I must face the one I've denied my entire lifetime. There's a lot of famous Voltaire quotes, but that's one of the best ones. Back in the 1700s, like 1770, Mr. Smarty Pants. Still, though, when he stepped in eternity. You catch that? 40 camels loaded up. Can you buy your health? Well, Certainly not. I mean, in some cases, you might be able to extend your health, but if something's terminal and it's your time, it's your time. It's just a reminder to us that, like, you, would you rather be the Shunammite woman leaving your house and going somewhere, according to the word of the Lord, just to get by and provide for your children and your family for seven years in a, in a distant land and trust in the Lord? Or would you rather be Ben Haddad in your palace and you can't buy your way out of the grave? Which one would you rather be? Of course, you'd rather be the Shunammite woman and live by faith. Ben-Hadad never lived by faith. He bullied people and he took stuff. It's just a reminder that when you see people that get away with evil with large sums of money, and they do, and it seems to be in the news, anytime you look at the news, no one really gets away with anything. It's not even, it's not even, it's nothing. It, it doesn't mean anything. Ours is the kingdom. Jesus said, yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Ours is the kingdom. We're like the Shunammite woman. We're walking around with resurrected people, living abundant life, living eternal life now. And Elisha's like looking at 40 camels like, really? Did Elisha go like, give me the camels and the goods? No. Because like we said Saturday night, he's already in eternity. 
That's all temporal wealth, and he knows it to be such, and he's about the father's business. Ben-Hadad knows his last day. He's trying to give everything away to the prophet. If you live in eternal perspective, and in eternity, you're always ready for eternity. It's these people who live for the world and the temporal that suddenly, when the day of the Lord comes, they're just not ready for it, and they're ready to become, they're ready to go to a mosque, a, a temple, or whatever. Because suddenly, they realize Man, you're leaving it behind. But for us, what we've sowed will continue when we're gone, and what we're going to will be glory in front of us. Don't ever, don't ever covet Ben-Hadad and his 40 camels of wealth. Verse 16. Now we get some of these kings. These names are similar, and I'll, I'll break it down, but not too much, because just remember, they're all bad guys. Now, in the fifth year of Joram, the son of Ahab, the king of Israel... So he's the king that was, you've been talking about, about the Shunammite and all that stuff. Ask about the Shunammite woman. So in the fifth year of, the, of Joram, the son of Ahab, so he's the second son of Ahab to reign because Ahaziah already reigned and has died. Jehoshaphat, having been king of Judah, remember Jehoshaphat was king for a long time in Judah in the south. Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, so same name, and sometimes the, the, word, the name is like Joe and Joseph or Tom and Thomas. It, it, it makes it difficult at times. But Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, began to reign as king of Judah. So we got Joram already reigning in the north, who's also called Jehoram, and now Joram is reigning in, in Judah. And he was 32 years old when he became king, and he reigned eight years in Jerusalem. And he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel, just as the house of Ahab had done, for the daughter of Ahab was his wife, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Yet the Lord would not destroy Judah for the sake of his servant David, as he promised him to give a lamp to him and his sons forever. In the days, in his days, Edom revolted against Judah's authority and made a king over them themselves. And so Joram went to Zaire and all of his chariots with him. And then he rose by night and attacked the Edomites who had surrounded him and the captains of the chariots and the troops fled to their tents. Thus Edom has been in revolt against Judah's authority to this day. And Libna revolted at that time. Now, the rest of the acts of Joram and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? So that's in the book of Chronicles, farther down the road in the Old Testament. So Joram rested with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. Then Ahaziah, his son, reigned in his place. So this is not the Ahaziah who was in the business venture to go get gold with Jehoshaphat, the king of Israel, but... This is an Ahaziah, a son of Jehoshaphat, who took the name of the king of Israel in the north. And we already saw that they all intermarried, and thus they're all trading names. Verse 25. In the twelfth year of Joram, the son of Ahab, that's our Joram in the north, not the one of Judah we just read, king of Israel, Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaziah was 22 years old when he came when he became king, and he reigned one year in Jerusalem, his mother's name was Athaliah, the granddaughter of Omri, king of Israel. Now remember, we talked about Omri. That's Ahab's dad. Omri is, was so powerful that we have extra-biblical archaeological records of Omri from both the Moabites and the Syrians. He was a very powerful king. She's a granddaughter. So again, it's all this inner marriage, but it's a godly family line through Jehoshaphat married into the ungodly family line from Omri, and it all gets muddled. Verse 27. And he walked in the ways of the house of Ahab and did evil in the sight of the Lord, like the house of Ahab, for he was the son-in-law of the house of Ahab. 
Now he went with Joram, the son of Ahab, to war against Haziel, king of Syria. So now we got Haziel back in the picture. At Ramoth Gilead. And the Syrians wounded Joram. And then King Joram went back to Jezreel to recover from the wounds which the Syrians had inflicted on him at Ramah when he fought against Haziel, king of Syria. And Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, went down to see Joram, the son of Ahab, in Jezreel because he was sick. Now, we could do a whole application, but we won't. We'll just mention it. But yet again, this affirms one of those basic biblical truths that bad company always corrupts good morals. Very rarely in this situation does the godly lift up the ungodly. Both the Old Testament and the New Testament, the book of Proverbs tell us over and over again that bad company leads to bad fruit. Most of the bad habits that have wrecked people's lives began when they hung out with other people who did the same bad habits. And this is why it's so important for us at our age, whatever age we are, 20, 30, 40, 50, 16, 66, 75, even if you're in memory care, pick who you hang out with and who's influencing you. I want to stay confident in the promises of God in memory care. I don't want some poisonous person poisoning my mind at the dining hall in memory care. I'm not going to let them steer the conversation against the Lord. I'm deter- I've already purposed that in my life. Our mind belongs to the Lord. Our heart belongs to the Lord. Our body belongs to the Lord. We are tri-dimensional. We're spirit, mind, and body. God is triune in nature, and he made us triune. And all that we are, do we not know your body is the temple of the Lord? that we'd have the mind of Christ, that we're born of the Spirit. Our Spirit's made alive through the Holy Spirit. And it's like we want to, we want to walk in the presence of the Lord in time, space, and matter. We want him by our side as we look to him, the author and finisher of our faith, where we're going to him in glory, who ever lives and intercedes for us as our great high priest. Therefore, whatever's coming and going on in our life on a daily basis, we're trading time, temporal, for eternity, forever. So as these two things are happening every day, we're losing a day of our life, so we want to be investing in eternity. We do not have time when we're about the Father's business. Jesus said, I always do those things that please the Father. We do not have time to be shipwrecked and distracted and pulled out of our lane and off our game by people who are evil and bring us down with their evil. Or influences for evil. In See You at the Top, Zig Ziglar talked about in his landmark book that it starts with, in the name of tolerance, you accept something that otherwise would be repulsive, like smoking cigarettes. I talked about this. And then you accept it. And once you accept it and tolerate it, then you begin to embrace it. You first accept it, then you tolerate it. Then eventually you embrace it, then you defend it, and then you do it. And then you're destroyed by it. And that's exactly what we see happening, happen in our own society with things that have been strengthened by laws that are anti-Christ, anti-godly, anti-biblical. Things that would have repulsed us even 10 years ago, you see in commercials now when you're just trying to watch a Disney show. Don't let it do that to you. That's what I'm saying. Be careful who we yoke with, who we're intermarried with in spiritual things. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled, nothing's pure. 
And we need to guard our hearts and minds with the word of God, the promises of God, the person of Christ, and the things he wants to do with the purpose of our life. And we just can't let the relatives of Ahab, Athaliah, and all these distant relatives that we want peace with, to get along with, bring us down from our place of, of knowing what's true, right, just, and noble, and pull us into their situation to think like they think, act like they think, and do what they do. And this is what happened. And the real challenge what happened here with these, the, when all of a sudden now you're taking Azahiah's name here and then you're naming your kid Azahiah to just like for political purposes like European monarchs during the medieval times, in the end you step into eternity and you leave a train wreck behind you. And now Jehoshaphat's long gone, but all those compromises he made are affecting his children and his children's children. And instead of his kids being elevated in the Lord, like it says, one generation shall proclaim your praises to the next one. Instead, he made these compromises with these other people, and he's gone, and yet his compromises now affect his generations after him, his offspring. That's why it's so important for us older people that we finish strong. Because every good thing we do in Jesus' name is to the benefit of our adult children and our adult children's children, children, and so on and so forth. And if they don't walk with the Lord, don't let it discourage you. Just keep sowing the good seed in prayer and faith and what you do with the Lord. And that way when you're gone, the good seed you sowed will bring dividends in their life. Because you are a woman of faith and a man of faith. We don't go by what we see, we go by what we believe. This family train wreck that destroyed future generations does not have to happen in our lives, in the lives of our children's children. I fully reject it in Jesus' name and by the blood. We need to guard our hearts, we need to guard our homes, and we need to make godly decisions with what we let influence us, what we let in our house, and what we let influence our kids and our grandkids. Especially for the younger parents. I've never regretted holding a firm line on things in raising our kids. I've only regretted the compromises I made in raising our kids. And can I get an amen on that one from you older people? Because your kids are pushing for tolerance of sin. But we know better because it's the way that seems right to a teenager, but the end thereby is death. And that's why we, we make good decisions in the best interest of our children. It's always so subtle. I have never regretted taking a strong stand for things with my children. I have only regretted compromising my own stance with my children. These verses are very sobering. May they keep us sober. It's just nothing good comes from all this. Nothing good at all. Chapter 9. And Elijah the prophet called one of the sons of the prophet and said to him, Get yourself ready. Take this flask of oil in your hand and go to Ramoth-Gilead. Now, when you arrive at that place, look there for Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, and go in and make him rise up from among his associates and take him to the inner room. Take the flask of oil, pour it on his head, and say, Thus says the Lord, I have anointed you king over Israel. Then open the door, flee, and do not delay. So the young man, the servant of the prophet, went to Ramoth-Gilead. And when he arrived, there were the captains of the army sitting. And he said, I have a message for you, commander. And Jehu said, well, uh, for which one of us? And he said, for you, commander. And then he arose and went into the house, and he poured the oil on his head and said to him, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, 
I have anointed you king over the people of the Lord, over Israel. You shall strike down the house of Ahab, your master, that I may avenge the blood of my servant, the prophets, and the blood of all the servants of the Lord at the hand of Jezebel. For the whole house of Ahab shall perish, and I will cut off from Ahab all the males in Israel, both bond and free. So I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Basha, the son of Ahijah. The dog shall eat Jezebel on the plot of ground at Jezreel, and there shall be none to bury her. And he opened the door and fled. That's a powerful word. He dropped that word and he ran for his life. But he said it. Verse 11, Then Jehu came out and his servants... Uh, came out to his servants of his master, and one of them said, is all well? Why, why, why did this madman come to you? Sounds like your co-workers, right? Why did this madman come to you? And he said, well, you know, the, you know the man in his babble. And they said, a lie, tell us now. So they said, well, thus and thus he spoke to me, saying, thus says the Lord, I've anointed you king over Israel. Then each man hastened to take his garments, put it under him on top of the steps, and they blew the trumpet, saying, Jehu is king. You know, it's so funny how they treat believers in the, in the world, don't, isn't it? The eyes of madman, you know, the, the Christian girl, the Christian woman, the coworker, whatever, like, ah. But again, it goes back to, like, they, they, they don't want to, they, 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 they make fun of you, then, but they know, like, what's the word? Like, they know this is not a madman. And then there it is, it's the word, Jehu's king. I will point out to you the main application of this chapter is right here. Where thus says the Lord God of Israel. You know, in the Bible, it says over 3,000 times, thus says the Lord or the word of the Lord. It's all the word of the Lord, but over 3,000 times it says the word of the Lord. And here it says, thus says the Lord, Lord God of Israel. So it's a spoken word through the prophet over our, our guy, Jehu, who's going to become king over Israel. And he, his life has purpose, and the purpose of his life, the primary purpose is to execute judgment political time, space, and matter judgment against the house of Ahab. Now, we've watched Jezebel kill hundreds of the Lord's prophets. We've watched Jezebel threaten Elijah's life. we watched Jezebel plot and plan the murder of Naboth to take his vineyard. we watched her husband Ahab go along with it, only to die in battle himself in the chariot with the, blood, with the dogs licking his blood when they came back at the last chapter of 1 Kings. She's still alive. There's dozens and, dozens and dozens of descendants of Ahab all over Israel, and any one of them could become the king. And I've told you this before. Fascinating thing for me when I read the book on Peter the Great plus Catherine the Great, extensive books on Russian monarchs, I was stunned at like how they slaughter hundreds of people of the, that are relatives on the opposite side to make sure they can never be in an option to be a replacement king or queen in monarchs. Now, this is something hard for us to understand, although we do realize in a lot of politics, regardless of the political structure of a nation, people want to kill each other in opposite ends of politics, and they often do. But in monarchs, it's in, monarchal, in the monarchical system, it's so crucial that if you're going to be the king, and we saw this with Solomon and Adajona, his brother, you pretty much have to take everybody else out you, because they become a threat. And particularly with the Romanov dynasty that lasted centuries, you know, there's this one distant cousin that has a claim to the throne. So they grab him when he's five and they put him in a castle and he lives in isolation like a, like a crazy person for 40 years. And other people are trying to figure out where he lives so they can bring him out and make him the king against Peter the Great's descendants. 
So when you read, when you read something like this in the Bible, you're like, wow, this is crazy. Actually, it's not. This is medieval European history. This is what like Louis the Sun King of France did. This, this is what they did. This is how most of the educated world functioned from about 1200 AD to about 1800 AD. I mean, the monarchical system was ultimately overthrown at the end of World War I. It no longer was in play the way it was previously to that, more symbolic since that time. So when I read stuff like this, I used to go like, oh, this is so crazy. But actually it's not. When you study human history, it, it, it's especially Western history, it's not that crazy. Not American history, but particularly the European monarchical systems that set up all those wars in the 1800s, you know, Napoleon, War and Peace, the Franco-Prussian War, all those wars that leading up to World War I and World War II, it, it, it's this kind of stuff. So he was anointed to be the wrath of, a political wrath against the house of Ahab. That's what he's alive for. I'm glad we're not alive for that. Aren't you? Aren't you glad that you and I are not appointed to be the wrath of God on anyone's life? Aren't you glad that like we just get to love people and God gets to judge them? I really appreciate that. I wouldn't want the responsibility of being judge and jury over anyone's life. Would you? It's a great responsibility. I mean, if you're called to be a lawyer or a judge and you had to rule and capital punishment, things like that, I, I suppose, but it's such a serious thing to, it's kind of like with my dad, like me with my dad today. He's 92. I call him Colonel. I bring him to the dining hall and he's hey, the Colonel's here, and he's got the three guys he eats with and everything. The Colonel's here, you know, and I just think like, my dad went to war and people tried to kill him. And he had to call artillery rounds on the people trying to kill him because they're trying to kill them. And I'm just so glad that I never had to be in that situation in my life. Now, maybe some of you have served in the military. I don't know. But as I say with my dad, because he was wounded in Vietnam, Purple Heart, and he got the Bronze Star for bravery in the Korean War, I'm glad it was him and not me. I just can't even imagine how I'd respond to those stressful situations that create PTSD and all that stuff. This is serious stuff in the human experience. It's not for everybody, but it's what he was called to do. But what's interesting to me is as he was anointed to fulfill the word of the Lord in judgment, we're anointed to fulfill the word of the Lord in mercy and grace and peace. See, we're anointed by the Holy Spirit. Jesus says he'll send the Spirit to us to guide us in all things, to lead us in all things, to remind us of all things, and that he equips us to, to forgive our enemies like we talked about on Saturday. We're anointed. Jesus was anointed. When he began his ministry, the Holy Spirit came upon him. That's recorded for us in the Gospels. And then he began to do all the miracles. He was always Jesus, the Son of God, sinless before that. But when the Spirit came upon him, then it all began. And really, when we think about all lives have purpose and meaning, we fulfill that, we begin into that purpose when we give our life to Christ, and the Spirit comes in us, and he's upon us to see us through for the purpose he has for us. That's why we don't have time to waste any days of our life from the Lord. We have today, we're anointed for today, and we want to be about the Father's business today. Jesus said, I always do those things that please the Father. And the Spirit was upon him to do those things. And the Spirit is upon us to do and fulfill God's purposes in our life. He's upon us to do it. And we can trust him to lead us in it. He's with us to do it. 
He wills and works in us for his good pleasure. He doesn't leave us as orphans, but he gives us his word, his spirit, his promises. He gives us the power to do what we're called to do. There's nothing more wonderful for the disciple of Jesus Christ, male or female, young or old, to be doing the thing that they're alive to do in the power of the Holy Spirit upon them to do it. And that worship generation is why we're here tonight. We are here to be reminded that God has given us his spirit freely and without restraint to equip us and guide us to do those things that we're alive and breathing for this very moment. His word's going to always guide us and be a light into our path and a, 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 a lamp to our path and a light to our path. He's, it's going to work effectively in those who believe, but it's his spirit upon us to fulfill it. Only you can fulfill that call of God on your life. Only I can fulfill that call of God in my life. Bobby and I were in the back earlier. And I said, well, this is what I'm trying to do in teaching. He goes, you're 61. You're just now trying to do that. I go, hey, better late than never. You know, I brought up Colonel Sanders, right? Harlan Sanders didn't really cash in on life until he was like 65. And his run from 65 to 80 is as impressive as anyone's ever been in planet Earth between 65 and 80. Colonel Sanders, Harlan Sanders. So I figure, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm just in the prelude for 65 to 80. Harlan Sanders went from being broke to making a ton of money and supporting Jerry Falwell and Billy Graham's ministries and finishing strong his journey of life. He has some good quotes. If you Google Harlan Sanders quotes, there's some good ones. It's another life well lived. I can't change any shortcomings from before this day, but I can be open to the Spirit coming upon me to fulfill what is in front of me from this day. And that's something we can all do. Most of us are over 50 in this gathering. I keep saying, I want to pour it on in the second half. You know, I just want to take the game over in the second half. I don't want to fade and blow a lead. I want to find another gear and pour it on. I don't want anyone to say, my dad rusted out, my grandpa rusted out, our pastor rusted out. You can say, I flamed out. But don't, you know, but don't, no. By the way, things break down quicker, including our, our lives, when they're not being used and when they are. Anything being unused will rust out and break sooner than something being used, including the soul that is within us and the call of God in our life. So we want to fulfill those things that God has set before us. His was a, his was a tough calling. He's got, to, he's, got to, he's got to put some things in order. Good for him. God wants to put things in order through our lives. Good for us when we choose to let him do it. Verse 14. So Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, conspired against Joram. Now Joram had, def- had been defending Ramoth Gilead, he and all Israel, against Hazael, king of Syria. But King Joram had returned to Jezreel to recover from the wounds which the Syrians had afflicted on him when he fought with Hazael, king of Syria. What we just read about there back in chapter 8. And Jehu said, if you ever mind, let no one leave or escape from the city to go and tell it in Jezreel. So Jehu rode in on a chariot and went to Jezreel, for Joram was laid up there, and Ahaziah, the king of Judah, had come down to see Joram. So in other words, the two other kings are there at the same time in the same place. Now a watchman stood on the tower in Jezreel, and he saw the company of Jehu as he came, and he said, I see a company of men. And Joram said, hey, get a horseman and send him to him and meet them and, and let him say, is it peace? So the horseman went to meet him and said, Thus says the king, is at peace. And Jehu said, What have I to do with peace? Turn around and follow me. 
So the watchman reported saying, the, the, the messenger went out to him, but he is not coming back. And then he sent out a second horseman who came out to him and said, thus says the king is at peace. And Jehu said, what have I to do with peace? Turn around and follow me. So the watchman reported saying, he went up to them and is not coming back. And the driving is like the driving of Jehu, the son of Nimshi, for he drives furiously. Then Joram said, make ready. And his chariot was made ready. And then Joram, the king of Israel, and Ahaziah, king of Judah, went out, each in his chariot. So now these two kings are going out together. And they went out to meet Jehu and meet him on the property of Naboth, the Jezreelite. Oh, WG. No one gets away with anything. That is an incredible detail. Naboth's vineyard. Oh, my goodness. It might take... A few generations, it might take even centuries, but know this, God's perfect wheels of justice always complete their task sooner or later. Mm-mm-mm. In the property of Naboth the Jezreelite. Verse 22, not happened when Joram saw Jehu, said, is it peace, Jehu? So he answered, what peace as long as the harlotries of your mother Jezebel and her witchcraft are so many? He speaks truth. Then Joram turned around and fled and said, as I, treachery as Isaiah, treachery. And now Jehu drew his bow with full strength and shot Jehoram between his arms and the arrow came out of his heart. And he sank down in his chariot. Then Jehu said to Bidkar, his captain, pick him up and throw him in the track of field of Naboth the Jezreelite. For remember when you and I were riding together behind Ahab, his father, that the Lord laid this burden upon him. Surely I saw yesterday the blood of Naboth and the blood of his son, says the Lord, and I will repay you in this plot, says the Lord. Now therefore take and throw him on the plot of ground according to the word of the Lord. As a man sows, shall shall he reap. And Ahab's judgment came upon his children, even as what he did to Naboth came upon Naboth's children. What you pump is what you get back. What you put in is what you're going to get back. Sowing and reaping is the most absolute law, spiritual law of the universe. And it will come back on somebody. And if it's not you, it'll be on your descendants. According to the word of the Lord, no one gets away with anything. Verse 27, but when Ahaziah, king of Judah, saw this, he fled by the road to Beth Hagen. So Jehu pursued him and said, shoot him also in the chariot. And they shot him at the ascent of Gur, which is by Iblim, when he fled to Megiddo and died there. And his servants carried him in the chariot to Jerusalem and buried him in his tomb with his fathers in the city of David, because, of course, he's a king of Judah. In the 11th year of Joram, the son of Ahab, Ahaziah had become king over Judah. So Joram's dead, the king of Israel's dead, Ahaziah, the king of Judah's dead. That only leaves Jezebel. Now, when Jehu had arrived, verse 30, and had come to Jezreel, Jezebel heard of it, and she put paint on her eyes. She put her makeup on and adorned her head. She got her hair all done up. She wasn't going to look good for her last moment in time, space, and matter. And she looked through the window. Then as Jehu entered the gate, she said, Is it peace, Zimri, murder of your master? See, you, you, can, you just can never reason with this woman. This woman is going to be the center of her universe till her last breath. Till her last breath, she's going to be the center of her universe. Verse 32, like so many people we know. And he looked up into the window and he said, who's on my side? Who? So two of the three eunuchs looked down at him and then he said, throw her down. So they threw her down and some of her blood splattered on the wall and on the horses and he trampled her underfoot. And when he had gone in and ate and drank, then he said, go now and see this accursed woman and bury her for she was a king's daughter. So they went to bury her, but found no more of her than her skull and the feet and the palm of her hands. Therefore, they came back and told him and he said, this is 
the word of the Lord, which he spoke by his servant Elijah the Tishbite, saying, On the plot of ground at Jezreel, dogs shall eat the flesh of Jezebel, and the corpse, the body of Jezebel, shall be his refuge on the surface of the field. In the plot at Jezreel, so it shall be said, Here lies Jezebel. And that is the end of Jezebel. But not quite. Because so evil was this woman that her evil transcends covenants. She's not limited to the Old Testament. Like, you think about Delilah. Delilah was an evil woman. She just, she's like, she just betrayed her lover for money. Like, that's pretty common, actually. I mean, not that common, but it's not that surprising. But Jezebel's like, hey, I, 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 you know, I'm going to kill Elijah. She took on God. She fought God. She killed the prophets of God. She went after Elijah. She took Naboth's vineyard. She was just so out of control. So we're warned of her in the New Testament, in the book Revelation, where of the seven churches of Asia there in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, we read about that woman Jezebel. There was an evil woman in the church who was a false prophetess, and God said, you allow her in your church. So we hear so often of the spirit of Jezebel with evil women. You might say of an evil man, he's an antichrist, but you might say of an evil woman, she's a Jezebel. The name is so negative. It conjures up such negativity for people of faith because the woman is so evil and the Holy Spirit made sure then Jesus references her. It's red letters where she's mentioned in Revelation because it's the Lord speaking to his church. That she was so evil, what she did and what we read in First and Second Kings, that her name carries over to the New Covenant and lands in the last book of the Bible as a warning to evil women to not be evil and as a warning to men to not tolerate that kind of evil in the body of Christ. How's that? I'll tell you what it is. It's sobering. It's sobering. So ladies, we're told that you're to be like Sarah with the spirit of humility and love and that inward adornment and that beauty that comes from the heart is loving the Lord. And men, we're told to not only flee youthful lust, but definitely stay away from Jezebel. She's bad news. There are people that are just evil, and their evil is so far-reaching, we just have to be very aware and alert and just know we have nothing to do with these kind of people. And of course, again, we're reminded that no one gets away with anything because lest we say, like, oh, it's so violent, this chapter, these chapters, like, oh, it's so violent. Yeah, but what's it say? According to the word of the Lord. According to the word of the Lord. According to the word of the Lord. See, no one perpetrates violence on planet Earth and gets away with it. Other than either Christ paid for it because they come to Christ and are forgiven of their sins, or they pay for it. But there's no evil that's not going to be held accountable, either through Christ dying in our place or people giving account for their sins. And we're reminded of that. But again, as we look at these passages tonight, we're reminded that a famine is for us to grow and get stronger in the Lord. And when our faith is tested, to thrive and flourish when things are going against us and let God show himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are loyal to him. And we're reminded in the calling of Jehu, it's not the easy things that God calls us to do. often calls us to do very difficult things. But we are reminded as we think of the New Testament that the Spirit of God comes upon us to bring life and light and hope and peace to the circumstances that surround our life and where God takes us with our life. And that's who we're called to be. So I'm grateful we don't have to be Jehu executing wrath, and I'm grateful none of you are Jezebel, 
And I'm grateful we can all go home and know that God has a good plan for us. And ours is the kingdom. Ours is the glory. And we can trust him in everything, particularly the famine.